0: To get started, visit plushcare.com/weightloss. That's plushcare.com/weightloss. That's the sound of another sale on Shopify in store. Shopify POS is everything you need to sell in person, from payments to inventory. Shopify unites your sales into one commerce platform. Sign up for a one dollar per month trial period at shopify.com/retail23.
1: Shopify.com/retail23. The Other Hand is part of the ACAST Creator Network.
0: Welcome to the latest episode of The Other Hand. Uh, I want to start today with uh, a discussion on what's happening in Argentina. We had the second round of voting in the election at the weekend, and a self-described anarchist capitalist, a chainsaw-wielding economist, and a former TV commentator, Javier Millet, has been elected president with a vote of 55.8%. Um, and that unseats the Perna's centre-left party um, represented in this election by Sergio Massa. Um, and it's, 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 it's a pretty dramatic election result. And um, wh- where do I start on this, Crystal? so much one can say about this guy um he said in his um, victory speech that today is the end of the model of a nomine-present state that that impoverished Argentina. He said in the election campaign that he would take a chainsaw to the state, hence the title chainsaw wielding economist and he did some photographs with a chainsaw in his hand and uh, what he means by taking a chainsaw to the state is to cut spending by government by 15%. He spoke about legalizing the sale of human organs. He spoke about eliminating all gun laws. He spoke about abolishing the central bank and introducing the dollarization of the Argentinian economy. He referred to China, which is Argentina's largest trading partner, as murderous. He referred to Pope Francis, an Argentinian, as a filthy leftist. And he described climate change as a socialist hoax. So <laughs> I could go on, but that, that that that's a pretty strong election platform. But interesting, over the last couple of weeks, ahead of the second round, final round of voting, um, he did roll back on a lot of that very, very strong language. But now that he's elected, God only knows what's going to happen. Um, a few other points that I think are interesting. Uh, Donald Trump surprisingly has congratulated the libertarian. Why you surprised? I'm joking. Oh, I'm sorry. Being, sorry. I'm being cynical, Chris. Jesus. Um, Trump's response was, I am very proud of you. And of course, uh, Milai um, really did look at Trump as a model for. Uh, getting political power over the last um, while. His running mate is a lady called Victoria Villaruel, who's a longtime defender of the dictatorship that was in place in Argentina from 1976 to 1983. And this election, notwithstanding all of that stuff I've said about what Milay stands for, uh, but i think the real significance of this election in many ways is that the peronist the center left peronist party have dominated argentinian politics since the return to democracy in 1983 its track record in government has not been a positive one you know over the past couple of decades they have doubled the size of the public sector they have introduced massive subsidies they have introduced very very stringent regulation Uh, The economy is in a sense of freefall at the moment, declining by 2.8% in the second quarter. And between 1993 and 2003, growth in the Argentinian economy has averaged just 0.5% per annum. Inflation is currently running at 143% and interest rates stand at 133%. So here we have An example of an economy that has been absolutely run into the ground by poor um, politics, poor economic management. And incidentally, in that regard, when I think back to the 2009 10 period in this country, when, you know, we prior to the IMF coming into the country, and indeed when the IMF came in, um, there was all the A narrative from the left, particularly about burning the bondholders, and Argentina was being cited as an example of a country that defaulted on its debt. And some were arguing that Ireland should follow that route. Um, I was not in agreement with that view of the world at the time because of the damage, if it were possible. But even if it weren't, even if it were possible, the damage it would do to the economy, I think, would take generations to get rid of. And Argentina is a very strong example of that. So I I, I think for an economy or a country that is becoming a brick, um, this is an absolutely chaotic situation, but it just goes to show you the, the seeds that are sown that give rise to the sort of extremist politics we are seeing in many countries around the world. And um, all I can say is, looking at what's happening here in Ireland, we should thank our lucky stars that we actually live in a pretty well-functioning democracy and a pretty well-functioning economy. We have our problems, but by God, if you compare us to countries like Argentina, indeed Venezuela, it just shows how mad, mad politics can actually destroy a country. And indeed... Uh, The view that the Argentinian people have clearly taken with a strong majority over the weekend was that things have been so bad that let's give something else a shot. It can't be any worse. I, I, I hold my breath on that one.
1: Similar sentiments were expressed in 1930s Germany when Hitler was looking for votes. There are plenty of examples in history where electorates... In supposedly democratic countries, do make some extremely interesting decisions about making things better after particularly turbulent times. Argentina is fascinating from a whole host of respects, not just the circumstances of the recent election. Uh, a well known FT journalist called Alan Beatty once wrote a great book a few years ago now called A Surprising Economic History of the World. And essentially, the book was about the consequences of economic policy and the contribution they can make and not make to economic growth and development generally. And the there were many examples and different ways that he uh, explored those themes. But the main one was comparing Argentina to the United States. And he went back in time, not too, too long ago, to when Argentina and the United States were at very, very similar stages of economic development. As I say, it wasn't that long ago. Big countries, a lot of natural resources, uh, lots of people. Um, lots of different ways in which things could have gone and Argentina basically went down the road of doing anything but economic policy to encourage economic development and the United States did all sorts of different things from the rule of law through to uh, semi-decent economic policies at critical moments in the United States history and Argentina just became essentially a kleptocracy uh, that most obviously, the, the Peronists, uh, to the extent that there was anything to be grabbed in Argentina, they grabbed it for themselves. And the rule of law was noticeable by its absence. Contracts were not worth the pages they were written on. Protectionist policies, all sorts of different things that just went wrong for Argentina. And it's, it's a story about how economic policy is very, very consequential. And dilettantes of the far right and the far left pretend that it isn't. Um, But it is. and The decisions that you make today when it comes to economic policies often have far-reaching consequences well beyond electoral cycles. And so it has proven with Argentina. Alan Beatty has actually written about it today. He's an expert. As I say, he wrote a book about it and he's written a little newsletter for the FT today. And it's it's a class piece of writing. It's worth quoting if you don't mind. Alan Beatty says, after most of a century in thrall to well to one self-destructive economic ideology, Argentina's evidently decided to have a shot at another. Yesterday, it elected as president Javier Millet, who wants to dollarize the economy, despite not having the dollars to do so, and to savage the size of the state. That's not to mention his unpleasant associations and objectionable eccentricities in other areas. You, Jim, have mentioned some of those. How a country manages to hop straight from Peronism to reactionary anarcho-capitalism without ever having a go at boring old liberal social democracy is a wonder to behold. Given Millet has said he wants to withdraw from Mercosur, which is the Latin American Trade Association country thing, this certainly adds a bit of spice to the EU's push to finalize ratification of its trade deal with the South American bloc over the next few weeks. Brussels is trying to get it done by December the 6th. And Brazil hands over the presidency of Mercosur to Paraguay. Milet will be sworn in on December the 10th. Ladies and gentlemen, place your bets, please. He's obviously profoundly and deeply sceptical. I shouldn't laugh, because in a way, this has the potential to be quite tragic for the Argentinian people who have clearly suffered a great deal under various regimes, under various, let's face it, elected dictators, sometimes absolute dictators, and... I suspect you will agree with me, Jim, that from everything this guy has said, which may or may not be connected to what everything he's now going to do, uh, the outlook is not going to be good for the Argentinian economy and therefore for its people. So I think we should cry for Argentina, actually, um, to to, to quote the um, cliched song. Um, It's it's going to be very interesting to watch, but it isn't just of academic interest. It's it's a reminder, albeit a very extreme one. The economic policy is very, very consequential. One of the reasons, the main reason, why Argentina is in such an economic and therefore political mess today is because of economic decisions, economic policy decisions taken over many years that have been uniformly bad. One of the reasons why the UK is up shit creek without a paddle today is because of decisions taken in the field of economic policy. We all know what they are, not least Brexit. It reminds us that when Ireland, for example, is thinking about the economic policies that it's going to pursue over the next few years and the potential for radical change in those policies, we can have an argument about what the consequences are going to be. But the more radical your policies, whichever direction you go in, the more consequential they are likely to be. And if you want Ireland to change a lot from how it looks today, you mentioned how well it looks today, notwithstanding the problems that you and I discuss endlessly on this podcast. Um, there are going to be big consequences from a, a change of government, uh, from the permanent Fine Gael, Fine Foil uh governments of, of, of really the last God knows how many years uh to to a very different one. And in that regard, Jim, there's one very specific policy that I just want to come back to. Let's not spend a lot of time on it because we, we devoted a lot of the last podcast to A number of readers drew my attention to a point that I think you made, actually, but maybe it just didn't land enough and we didn't make enough of it. It's
0: my war for accent, Chris.
1: Possibly, possibly, or maybe, as usual, I interrupted you. Um, That's
0: possible. That's always possible. (laughs) I wouldn't rule it it
1: out. But the last time Sinn Féin apparently uh, published a target for its house-building renaissance, rescue of the Irish problem, Um, it was for about 40,000 units a year. And uh, apparently, again, they've they've been saying recently that it will take at least a full term, if not two terms of uh, them being in power to reach and sustain that target. Is, Is that
0: correct so far? Yeah, that is correct. And they put the cost in at that stage at about six and a half billion.
1: Okay, so we'll park that point about cost just for a second, but only for a second. Of course, one of the things that we perhaps should have made more of, and I think, you, as I say, you did, but maybe it got lost in, in in my verbiage, is that we're getting closer to that 40,000 targets under the current government, aren't we?
0: Yeah, this year we'll hit around 30,000. So uh,
1: what's going to be so different about Sinn Féin is the obvious question that arises from that. Are they going to increase their targets? Um, but it seems to me that that's not a radical shift in terms of actual policy outcomes. Or, or policy targets, shall we say. Um, the second thing is, of course, that uh, one suspects they have to revise their cost estimates. Would you say that's reasonable?
0: Uh, I suspect they nearly have to double them.
1: Yeah, that's what I yeah. thought. So it's not that we ignored that point, but I think it is a very interesting one. And if I was Fina or Fina Foyles or both PR agency or media managers or press office, who do, who I don't think do a great job in advertising the successes of the coalition. They play defense rather than offense. Is that I would just simply be banging on about the fact that we've we're, we're very close to achieving these targets that Sinn Fein want to be elected to 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 hit. So what's the point of voting for Sinn Fein? The second thing that somebody drew my attention to is that there is going to be an interesting case for a particular type of tactical voting come the new uh, come the general election, which is if you don't want if if you whatever housing target you have whether it's thirty thousand forty thousand or fifty thousand a year um, and presumably it is going to go up. Sinn Fein will have to differentiate their offering away from what is currently being achieved. Um, is that if you don't want these extra new houses built close to you, vote for Sinn Fein. Absolutely, a new form of NIMBYism because yeah. the list of Sinn Fein candidates and actual councillors and and various other politicians in that party is that they always is is this a a fair thing to say jim seem to oppose any development in their constituencies
0: chris if you look at the labor party people before profit sinn fein the one thing they all have in common is massive objection to any attempt to deliver housing within the constituencies of the affected tds so if you're a finfoil
1: or finnigale uh td um, your constituents are going to get a lot of houses built close to them after the next general election. Would that be a conclusion?
0: Well, well, yeah. I mean, the, I guess the point is that there is a vested interest on the part of Labour, People for Profit, um, Sinn Féin, not to solve the housing crisis while Fine Gael and Fianna Fáil are in government. So as a consequence, um, oppose and object to everything. And then when we get into government, as in we as in Sinn Féin, um, we will then turn around and we'll just build all of those houses that we objected to. Um, and where, then, where, Jim? Where? Uh, oh well, I mean, th- this, the objections have been all over the
1: place. Um, yeah. You know, presumably, Antwerp, presumably. St. If you're a proper NIMBY, you'll just look at the the planning of these houses in areas where, where
0: you're not getting votes. Oh, indeed, 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 indeed. Um, for example, the the, the the little corner of the constituency I live in, um, and I live in a constituency that's represented by some very, very strange people. Um, but the corner that I live in, I suspect Sinn Féin wouldn't get a huge number of votes here. So one of the things you do then, obviously, is um, that's where you build the houses. Interesting. But I, say, I say bring it on. To be honest, I don't care where they're built. Um, I've said so many times that socially and economically, it is the biggest problem challenge we're facing. And anything we can do to solve that problem, to me, would represent a positive outcome. So um, I, I just hope the next government, whatever the complexion is, actually just presses ahead and delivers as many houses as possible, as quickly as possible, of the right type, in the right area built to the highest quality standards and of course
1: that that raises the question which you've touched on already that the one of costs and that Sinn Féin's original estimate should be doubled that's because the cost of building these things has gone up and the original estimate was probably a fantasy anyway Uh, yeah and I
0: I think I said in the last podcast Chris that to go beyond this 30,000 challenge um or 30,000 tar or sorry 30,000 new residential unit completions, uh, that capacity of the industry to deliver will be a significant constraint. So there has to be um, a lot more focus on bringing in the skills we require and doing whatever it takes in terms of work permits and so on um, to have the workforce and the skills needed to deliver Housing in excess of thirty thousand. Of course, so, that's a two-edged uh, sword. If you have to, if you have to
1: bring in from outside the country a lot of workers to, live to build these houses, where are they going to live? Yeah. The second uh, question. It's the time of year, as I said to you in the last pod, Jim, that we we start to look to twenty twenty four, and I think we should do a couple of outlook pieces over the next while. But I am going to pin you to the wall and ask you for a forecast that if we do manage to say next year, if this year is going to be thirty thousand, and we get that up to closer to forty thousand in twenty twenty four. And in keeping with everything else that we talk about in terms of interest rates, interest rates and mortgage rates begin to fall next year. What do you think is going to happen to house prices in 2024? Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more
0: Ah <laughs> know, Chris. Uh I I guess weighing up all of those economic headwinds, tailwinds, um, the likely interest rate scenario, the likely supply scenario, um, I think it'll be a pretty flat housing market in 2024 in terms of average prices. But I would also um I think stress, Chris, that we shouldn't really talk about a housing market because The Irish housing market is made up of uh, probably hundreds of micro markets. Um, You know, I look at towns like where I come from, Dungarvan, where demand is phenomenally strong there at the moment and prices are reflecting that. Other parts of the country where demand is a lot less strong. So there's a lot of micro housing markets around the place. But national average, I would be expecting, and I'd probably be proven totally incorrect on this uh, but th- that's my own fault now for actually um, rising to the bait that you just set me. But I, I would say a pretty flat market in 2024. I uh, hope I'm right. But is there. What do you think, Chris? Sorry, what do you think?
1: Oh, I think house prices won't um, collapse too much in Ireland. I think that it would take a broader economic collapse to produce a fall. I think the thing that will produce a fall in Irish house prices, should it ever occur, would be broad-based economic weakness. And that, of course, could be a good old-fashioned recession. That can happen. It probably will at some point, hopefully not next year. I don't think that combination of increased supply and lower interest rates taken together will have much impact on house prices one way or the other. I think it's the broader economy that's going to be the bigger deal. And if you're reasonably optimistic, as I think we both are about the broader economy next year without being too gung-ho about it, Prospects are not as good going forward as they have been for the last couple of years. That's the caveat. Um, I, th- I think that, as you say, it's a bit of a wash. So I, I know it's a bit um, uncontroversial or not very interesting to say, Jim, I agree with you. But what that raises is the point that is, d- what what's your definition then of the housing pr- crisis being solved? Because what, we, what we've talked about there is an increase in housing supply, but prices remaining broadly speaking, roughly where they are at the moment. And if that was to continue for the next few years, if, say, for example, the Sinn Féin government produces its big increase in housing supply, but prices don't fall, is that the housing
0: crisis cured?
1: Well, uh, does, does, does... I don't I don't know is a perfectly acceptable answer.
0: Yeah, no, I mean, there's, there's two elements to this, Chris. Uh, one is the price of houses. But the second piece is what happens on the rental side. I actually think, I actually think rent levels are a bigger problem than house prices at this juncture, and um, I think the one thing that sort of supply should have a positive impact on would be the rental market, uh, more so than the okay. house. Okay. Well, yeah, extending
1: because- extending the argument or the question, if the supply of rental properties increases reasonably strongly over the next few years through various policy initiatives, consequential economic policy making has a beneficial effect, and we get plenty more rental properties, say, for the sake of argument, but rents don't come down. Is that the rental crisis solved or not?
0: No, it is not. I mean, uh, the, the the rental crisis is made up of two um, separate elements, which are obviously very highly interrelated. One is the level of rent. Secondly, it's the availability of rental property. And you'd have to believe that if the availability of rental property increased significantly, uh, that it would bring rents down. And that, to me, would represent um, success in terms of addressing the, houses, the housing crisis. Okay. All right. Let's move on. We've, we've, yeah, Chris, we've told- I, 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 I want to move you on, actually, yeah, to what's happening in financial markets at the moment. Um, the dollar is under pressure again, up over 109 against the euro this afternoon, Monday. Um, this is the lowest level the dollar has hit against the euro since August, um, and the, the the rationale being given by the markets for this is that there is an expectation that U.S. interest rates could fall as early as March, uh, but there's also an expectation that European interest rates will fall next year. So that is an excuse. For describing what's happened, to the dollar—I uh, just don't buy. But anyway, the dollar is under a little bit of pressure. Um, the Nasdaq, the technology-laden U.S. equity index, is at a 22-month high, and um, that market is obviously dominant. That index is obviously dominated by a few large tech companies, and there's one of those particularly interesting at the moment, and that is Microsoft uh, today, Monday. It hit an all-time high um, in terms of stock price. Its valuation of that company is now a trillion dollars higher than Alphabet or Google, as it was known. Um, And a couple of years ago, the view in markets was that Microsoft was not at the races in terms of AI um, and that Google would wipe the floor. And suddenly, that has totally flipped and over the weekend, uh, we had some dramatic developments with Sam Altman. He was sacked by a CEO by Open AI and he was immediately hired by Microsoft in a an AI role and the Microsoft stock stock price has risen dramatically as a result of that. So because there is a view that Altman actually will give Microsoft a huge, Uh, Philip in terms of driving the whole AI project and the AI agenda so it's a it's a really interesting story and I guess there's lots of speculation as to why Altman was actually sacked what are you hearing? There are lots of interesting strands there Jim the the sequencing of
1: events was was uh, a little bit more complicated than you described there which you rightly did for just keep it short Um, as always I won't. Uh, they Microsoft lent on the board of OpenAI to not fire to hire him back to hire Sam Altman back. And Microsoft has clout with OpenAI because it has either actual or promised investments in that company totaling around thirteen billion dollars. It in you know that's a lot of money. So it does have some clout, but clearly doesn't have a lot or enough because uh, the board of OpenAI refused to hire him hire him back. And the latest, and it was only after that that Microsoft then announced that they were hiring him, plus one or two other key lieutenants of Altman's. Subsequent to that, today, there has been a letter apparently written and signed by 500 of OpenAI's employees saying to the board, if you don't hire Sam back, um, we're all off to Microsoft. Whether or not Microsoft wants them or whether or not that is a threat rather than something will actually be delivered remains to be seen. But we'll but we will see. Jim, I don't know if you remember, it was a long time ago now, we are not a share tipping or investment advice site.
0: Yes, Chris, you bought one Microsoft share.
1: I bought a Microsoft share and um, I actually added a little bit, not enough. You can never have enough on a winner. Um, This was a a good while ago because it was actually in the wake of a presentation that I gave to a bunch of people at the Irish Management Institute uh, in Dublin. And I was asked if you were to want to invest in the future of AI and try and be part of it from a financial upside point of view, what would you buy? And of course, there are lots of different ways that you can play that. Uh, the way in which venture capitalists play it is by doing early seed inv- investing in companies like OpenAI. But from a public market point of view, it struck me at the time that the most obvious way to do it was for for the reasons that we've been suggesting uh microsoft so i'm happy to report that the only time i have ever in a way tipped a share it seems to be doing quite well so that's um me congratulating myself which i know i shouldn't do because that probably is the kiss of death for microsoft uh share price but i'm happy to hold on to my very small holding in in microsoft shares wish i had a, a good few more given given what it's done uh, but I do think Microsoft, as you say, has emerged as a, as a potential winner from all of this. It's doing lots of other good things as well. There's a lot, lots of reasons why its share price is up. It's not just because of the hype over AI. And the interesting question, therefore, is how much of it is hype and how much of it is real? And the answer is we don't know. Lots of people have lots of different opinions. The I'm getting more jaundiced about one aspect of AI, which is the chatbot thing, the ChatGPT gpt and bard and all those other different things simply because of the number of wrong answers it gives me every time i ask it a question so i, I don't trust them anymore to be give, giving me the right information i have to know the answer to the question to be sure that the answer is right which is rather defeats the point and i'm reminded of shane's comment to us our professor of neuroscience friend from trinity that these things are stochastic parrots and i think he's right um the speculation, and it is only that of why Altman has gone from open AI, is that the board are becoming very nervous about the dangers and threats posed by AI, and this headlong accelerating rush into it is going to create problems for them, for humanity. Who knows what it is that they're actually worried about? But those fears are echoed all over the place, and, I, and it seems that they may have wanted him to slow down. I don't know. I don't think anybody really knows what's going on other than the insiders. So it, it's... It's part of what's going on at the moment in terms of markets. The only shares that are really going up are these tech-related shares, the ones particularly exposed to AI. Um, there is an awful lot going on. It is an arms race. Uh, it seems to me to be moot whether getting one company or even one country's AI efforts slowed down is rather beside the point because uh, if you, you're not going to be able to slow the world down. China's at it. I fully expect Russia to be at it. And you're certainly not going to get them to slow down. And there, there, there is chatter. I've heard chatter that um, some of the executives buried inside these companies in California are worried that um, some of these AI systems—not necessarily the chatbots, but some of the broader uh, AI systems in which these things are nested—are starting to show signs of sentience in some philosophical way that I don't fully understand. They're being—they're showing signs of being able to reason. And apparently, that's got them absolutely terrified. I think I should probably be terrified as well, but I think there are plenty of other things in the world to be worried about rather than um, sentient chatbots. What do you think, Jim?
0: Yeah, I mean, I've I've uh, spoken in the in the past podcast about the book by Mustafa Suleiman, which I found um, particularly fascinating. Um, it's called the coming wave um and I refer back to this because it's one of the few books I've actually read in detail on the subject uh, but certainly and I notice he features in the quarterly publication Foreign affairs this week or this quarter so um, he he's definitely uh, getting a lot of airplay and has, has a lot of credence out there uh, but he does paint a pretty scary picture about the challenges and indeed that was reflected in the meeting that Rishi Shunak hosted in London recently about handling the challenges and it's as if Rishi actually read that book and then decided to convene um, this this, uh, coming together of um, the various experts and I I presume, but I'm not certain that Mustafa Suleiman was actually at that, if he wasn't he should be uh yeah but it's it, it's certainly up there and that's a really interesting theory that Sam Altman um was sacked because they couldn't rein him in yeah uh, yeah so that's that's one theory during the rounds yeah. of course yeah it's an interesting in the, it's an interesting it, theory
1: though it 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 does stand up people people can be sacked for all sorts of things and mm. um uh i i've known people be sacked for very strange reasons misbehavior being one that i've uh, seen seen happen at very senior levels in organisations and boards are of course uh, are very sensitive about that but it, it, the favourite is that the the board is getting just a wee bit scared about where AI is taking
0: the human race which that is kind true. Of, that is kind of scary actually. Chris um, time is almost up, a couple of things I just want to wrap up on from my perspective uh, we spoke in our last podcast which we recorded Friday about oil prices and lo and behold um, they're up again. Death, Jim. Death, uh, yes. the they're up again over the last few days because um at the upcoming OPEC plus meeting um a pledge now has been given to deepen supply cuts to support oil prices and oil prices have reacted neg- negatively to that um, positively but, well yeah okay absolutely positively in if you're an investor in oil certainly positively but um, as a consumer of oil, I would regard it as negative. Okay, but indeed, um, indeed. I, I take your point. Can um, I, make, it, Jim? Can yeah. I interrupt you there? You uh, just, just because I always do. Um,
1: you know. One of my favorite economic bellwethers, or leading indicators, or just ways of finding out what's going on is the taxi driver, and I mean that in all seriousness. I'm not being facetious at all. Every time I go anywhere in the world, I ask taxi drivers, "What's the local economy like?"
0: That's and why I, go- I walk everywhere.
1: I got one in Dublin today, and it was an electric car, Toyota, 100% electric. And he says his entire taxi shift is one charge. It's more than enough range for him to work a full day shift in a Dublin taxi, provided he doesn't get, you know, a jobs that take him to Letterkenny or somewhere, something like that. And his average daily electricity charge is five euros. Uh, against uh, normally it would be 40 50 quid for diesel and that that's for me was a wow moment uh, to see the economics of taxi driving really change dramatically as a result of him driving an electric car and made me realize that that is utterly unsustainable because the government will come for that taxi driver's gap won't it it has to eventually
0: oh of course of course it will yeah um, right, if, that was all
1: related to the price of oil and all the rest of it. But yeah, anyway. yeah,
0: no, no, it is actually the electrification of the motor fleet will have huge implications for the tax take. Um, of, of course, the that, that the electrification
1: of the fleet can't happen until they do something about the grid. I mean, it just can't happen as, to, to scale at all, can it?
0: Oh no, it can. No, no, absolutely. And but there's there's the grid, but there's also the charging infrastructure. Uh, which is improving, but it's not adequate. Uh, But I put my hands up, Chris, and say, declare a vested interest here. Um, I am on the brink of going electric. Chris, I think we'll wrap it there. Um, The next time we do a podcast, we'll have two things certainly to talk about. One is on Thursday of this week, the Q3 Employment Report for Ireland will be published by the CSO. That will make for very interesting reading in the context of all of the stuff we discussed in the last podcast about uh, the export performance and about the corporation tax take and so on. And, of course, on Wednesday of this week, we have the autumn statement where Jeremy Hunt is promising to cut welfare and cut taxes. You couldn't make it up, could you, Jim? All
1: right. Look forward to talking to you about all of that, mate. Cheers.
0: Absolutely, Chris. Thank you. You have been listening to Chris Johns and Jim Power on the other hand. We hope you enjoyed it. Our back catalogue of podcasts can be found on our Substack account, www.cjpeconomics.substack.com, or on podcast platforms such as Apple and Spotify. If you would like to listen to the podcast free of advertisements, you can sign up to our Substack account. Comments and feedback are much appreciated. That's the sound of another sale on Shopify, in store. Shopify POS is everything you need to sell in person. From payments to inventory, Shopify unites your sales into one commerce platform. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash retail 23,
1: shopify.com slash retail 23.